we're simultaneously, we're, te- we're giving our kids messages about stand up for yourself. And we're giving our kids messages about be direct. Don't let people treat you badly. Um, care about justice and fairness. But then with black kids, parents of black kids have to say, except if you're with a cop, don't stand up for yourself. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. My guest today is a delightful damn giver named Kristen Howerton. Kristen is a blogger, author, single mom of four amazing children, family and marriage therapist, and according to her Twitter bio, a skilled catastrophizer. She is the founder of the popular blog, Rage Against the Minivan, and I'm also pretty sure she's the founder of the Asshole Parent hashtag on Instagram. You should find some of her posts on Instagram about that. They're amazing. Kristen is the author of Rage Against the Minivan, Learning to Parent Without Perfection, her brand new memoir. Glennon Doyle, New York Times bestselling author and founder of Together Rising, had this to say about Kristen and the book. Filled with humor, vulnerability, and heart, Kristen writes unflinchingly about what it means to be raising children in today's world and how to liberate ourselves from the myth of perfect motherhood. I've read it. It is all of those things. And during our chat today, we talk about growing up as a pastor's daughter, eventually marrying a pastor, divorcing said pastor, bringing four kids into their home over the short span of four years, what it's like to raise two biological white daughters and two adopted black sons, how to raise anti-racist damn-giving children, and so much more. She's an absolute delight of a human, and I know you're going to love our conversation. So let's dive in, shall we? As always, my email is hello at letsgiveadam.com. Email me anytime and for any reason. I'd love to hear from you. And here's my conversation with Kristen Howerton. Let's go. Kristen Howerton, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here. My wife has been a huge fan of yours for years. She's been reading your blog for years. You've encouraged her in so many ways. So, I just wanted to make sure I tell you that right here at the beginning because, um, yeah, just she's, uh, you, you obviously come across super authentically. It's why you've been able to build kind of a community around the kinds of things you write about. Um, and uh, she's been blessed in so many ways by your stuff. So just wanted to get that out there. She is sending Aww. a big, she's sending a big hello from Nashville to you're in California, right? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Well, hello back. There you go. Uh, And I'm glad your team reached out, honestly, because I've been wanting to have more conversations on this show about raising kids who give a damn, raising anti-racist kids and raising kids just in general in this super weird time in history. Um, You know, sometimes I I have to keep myself focused and I have to keep everything in context, right? Because I just finished, I don't know if you know the author, Jennifer Wright, um, she wrote a book called Get Well Soon, and it's about all the plagues throughout history and the people that fought them. And I just finished that book. And so hmm. I'm, re- I'm reading through this book about all these ridiculous plagues, you know, the bubonic so plague fun. and the plagues that the plague that took down like 10 million people in Rome and the Spanish flu. So on the one hand, I feel very fortunate to be living during this time when there uh, aren't bodies being right. piled, piled up in the street because we don't know what the hell we're doing. Right. It, is, it is a good time in history to be alive, but along with 
along with sort of these technological and medical and advances and otherwise, we also have, we just know more, right? We yeah. know more. So you and I, uh, I'm in Nashville, you're, I'm in Tennessee, you're in California, and we in real time are seeing this shit in Kenosha, Wisconsin right now, right? right? So that never right. happened before. It was always right. delayed by hours or days or weeks or months, or they never mm-hmm. heard about it at all. So it's just a weird time to raise kids. So I'm super excited to uh, get to work out some of this stuff with you today. So let's let's dive right in. I've got so yeah. much that I want to talk with you about. Uh, your book, which we'll, we'll allude to it a little bit, and we can talk as much or as little bit as, as you want, but we'll definitely link to it. This uh, memoir of sorts, Rage Against the Minivan, wonderful, wonderful book. Um, so you're an author, blogger, uh, single mom, family and marriage therapist, and according to your Twitter bio, a skilled catastrophizer. So I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't want to brag, but I'm yeah, yeah, like really yeah. good at it. Yeah, you. I, I, I can see that. I can see that already. I can see that in your writing, and we'll get into more of that, uh, you know, very soon. But your story involves, you know, so many just like critical things that so many people go through. It, you know, it, it, you talk about your infertility, you talk about divorce, mm-hmm. you talk about loneliness, you talk about being a, what it, what it was like to be a pastor's daughter and eventually a, you know, pastor's wife, uh, mm-hmm. ad- adoption, all of these huge, huge things. So why don't you um, go back as far as you want to, but sort of give us, and we'll talk along the way, and I have plenty of questions and things to interject, but I'd love to just hear your story in your own words, like how you, what were the, you know, who, what, when, where, and why's of becoming who you are today. And I know that's a super <laughs> jam-packed question, but I'd love to dive into stories because along the way, inevitably we'll see, you know, things, we'll see dots connected that show us how you turned out the way that you did and the things you write about and the kinds of things you talk about. Yeah. I mean, well, I grew up um, in a very conservative, very fundamentalist Christian home. My dad was a pastor and um I kind of struggled in that through high school a bit, was a little bit rebellious, but ultimately decided to go to Bible college where, you know, surely that would straighten me out and get me, of course. you know, it, rather than looking at the, at the denomination or the religious, you know, environment around me, it's just like, surely I'm broken and somehow externally something can fix. So I went to Bible college, wasn't a great fit, um, but I did end up getting married during college, pretty young. Um, as one does at Bible college, (laughs) been there, done that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the jokes about getting your MRS degree for women or, you know, a ring by spring. I mean, it's, it's, it's true. You know, there is, there is a culture at Bible college that you get married in college, you know, while you're there, you don't, you don't need to think about things like, have I lived on my own before or. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Have I done everything Do you, I wanted to? Yeah. Like, a very valid thing that so many kind of, it's not a, that they reject it. They're just force fed this idea of like yeah. your ultimate goal as a woman, especially in those circles, yeah. not in all Christian circles, but uh-huh. in those circles, cause that's the one I grew up in. It was your, your one primary, the biggest goal you could and should yeah. have is to be a wife, to that's be a mother. Right. So get it done as quickly as possible. Don't go out there oh. around. Don't go out there and like pursue no. your dreams. Cause you'll just end up uh, having to, squash dreams that are already in process so that you've accomplished to go do the thing that God put you on this earth to do. Right. That's right. And I felt that, you know, I was a, um, I've, I've, you know, I've always been a a person who runs a little anxious and I just, I wanted to lock that marriage thing down because like, as you said, that seemed like the most important thing. And so rather than giving it the time and, you know, the perspective that that kind of a decision should require, it was just like, 
oh, here's a, here's a guy. I'll get married. So I got married very young. Um, he was a pastor. We were involved in a mega church, a big mega church in California for um, good 15 years. And I was the dutiful pastor's wife. And then um, just along the way, I, be- I began to feel a little uncomfortable with some aspects of the church. Um, I'm still a Christian. I would still call myself a Christian, but, you know, I was uncomfortable with, you know, I had some LGBT friends who were fired from staff when they came out. Um, I was uncomfortable with, um, you know, some of the silence on issues of social justice and race. I was uncomfortable that we were this big mega church in a, what's actually a very um, diverse area of Orange County, but our church and staff was all white, you know, and I was asking questions about that and um, not feeling like I was getting any dialogue where in fact, I was feeling like I was getting frustration for asking the question. So ultimately we ended up leaving church staff and then we ended up leaving the church. Um, along the way, I, as you mentioned, you know, biggest goal in life, be a mom. Um, and so I, um, I'd gotten a marriage and family therapy degree. I was a therapist, but finally like, okay, I'm ready to, to do this, to be a mom and just had a, a difficult journey in that too. You know, it was things where, uh, I dealt with infertility and then I dealt with pre- recurrent pregnancy loss. Mm. And then we decided to adopt and our first adoption was delayed by three years, Um, so, and I write about all those details in the book, but just suffice it to say my journey, even to being a mom was very fraught and very unexpected. And then, you know, as is the case for many moms, just becoming a mom was, you know, it was more difficult, I think, than I expected as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, and now I have four teenagers, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's insane. You're scaring me. We have three uh, children, five, uh, yeah, five, seven, and eight. And for three months of the year, they're one year apart. So like in yeah. in a month, it'll be six, seven, and eight for a few months uh-huh. before the oldest, you know, get, gets a little bit older. Yeah, it's insane. And so you have, you have two biological white mm-hmm. daughters. Yes. And you have two adopted black sons, right? That's and I, right. I mm-hmm. first of all, super beautiful family. Like again, we like I followed you you all on social media and I've loved sort of seeing them. Now your sons look like grown adults. adults. Like yeah, they're so there's they're so tall and they're, they're like so grown big. men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which and we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into some of this as we talk about raising anti-racist kids in this this environment that we're in. I think there's some real some real things. Um you know, to talk about there. So you yeah. talk about the, so you, you had, you were experiencing, uh, and was, it, so you were, you wanted to just have kids and you experienced yep. infertility. Was mm-hmm. adoption ever part of the plan or was that something like, Hey, we want to have kids so badly that if we can't have our own, you know, uh, adoptions, obviously not even like a, it's not a backup plan, but it's a, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful alternative to having our own, right? Is that how it was? Or you, did you always want to adopt? Uh, I actually, I actually had always wanted to adopt. That's very much how I wanted to build my family. And, um, you know, my, my husband at the time I'm now divorced, but my husband, you know, was just like, no, I think we should just like have kids of our own, which is the thing. A lot of people say, you know, like have kids of our own and then adopt. I mean, which of course, like my children I've adopted are my own, but, um, that's just, you know, we were kind of, we didn't totally agree on how to start. And, you know, I was like, okay, let's do the 
pregnancy thing. Um, that seems more conventional. That seems like what most people do. Um, so, you know, a couple years into that journey of just me not being able to stay pregnant, I was like, I want off this roller coaster. Mm. I'm open to adoption. This, this isn't a second choice for me. So I don't want to keep doing this thing. That's so painful when there's waiting children, you know, I'm, I'm totally open to it. I don't need to sell. I don't need, you know, I don't need to grieve and then change yep. course. Like I'm happy to adopt. Um, and so we did. And so that's what we did. So we set out to adopt from foster care. Um, my oldest was adopted through foster care. But, you know, as does sometimes happen, um, he came to our home when he was six months old. We were to be his foster parents, but it was supposed to be what's called a fast track adoption, meaning um, his parental rights had already been terminated. Like, you know, they had actually been, you know, due to stuff that happened before he was even born. Mm -hmm. Like it was determined he would not be with his birth parents when he was born, but a, a relative emerged. And so he's living with us. He's our foster child. We think we're supposed to adopt him in six months. And this drags out for three years. Maybe the relative's coming. No, they haven't filled that paperwork. Wait, they're back. No, they haven't, you know, just back and forth. Um, so it was a very, very stressful time of being a new mom, but not knowing if my son was my forever son or just a foster kid that I would have in family photos you know, and, and, and say goodbye to, you know, we have, um, I can identify with that a little bit. Um, we, so we also grew up in, I think probably similar circles. Um, when we started to have kids, this is now, um, this isn't, we got married in 2008 and in 2009 or 10, we decided that we wanted to start a family. My wife wanted, you know, really quickly to start having kids. And we had a very complicated, uh, like our first go at trying to have kids was very complicated. It was a failed molar pregnancy. So it's different mm, than a, than it's a very stressful. Know, yeah. It's very just weird and stressful. Yeah. And there's so many unanswered questions. And yeah. even when, when the doctor says, we have no idea what this is and they have to go like study, they, had, they literally mm -hmm. had to go like study up and brush up on their molar pregnancy, like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, information. Cause they were like, we haven't seen one of these in forever. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was super stressful. And then them telling us, you know, you, you can't get pregnant for a year. That was super stressful mm. too. Cause it was, mm -hmm. it was different than a normal miscarriage where they say, give it a few weeks, then try mm -hmm. again. They were mm -hmm. like, don't get pregnant for a year. This is going to happen again. Yeah. That was super wild. So then we had planned on adopting our second child. Um, we, we always talked about wanting to adopt at the time we were part of this, um, evangelical community. Uh, you'll know all about where we were. We were part of the John Piper world at that point. I was all, I was all in that for a few years, helping sure. all the stuff over there. And there's a lot of one of the, I, I think one of the cool things that we saw happening, there was a lot of people like really embracing the, you know, bring, bringing kids in need out of the foster care system yeah. and, out of, and out of the adoption system. Like so yeah, many families had wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful, you know, uh, it was a really, a supportive community in that way. So we decided, well, if we can't have get pregnant for a year, let's try to adopt. And so we tried to adopt domestically and we got, we went through the whole process. You, you know, the drill and you know, we're 10, $15,000 in birth mother chooses us. Uh, she's going to have a baby in a month. She's 13, horrible situation. She was abused and blah, 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 terrible situation. So we're like kind of happy that we're able to do this. We go down there to meet her. She's got 72 hours to give up the baby, you know, to sign the papers. And she decides that literally 
hour 71, we're taking the baby. So it was, mm. oh my God, it was like the most stressful three days because we yeah. thought, I mean, their lawyer talked to our lawyer, everything's a given. Like you yeah. come, to, you come take the baby and we'll sign right away. And then she decided not to, she started, you know, maternal instincts kicking in. Like she just sure. wanted, to, wanted to be with her baby. And the doctors kept saying, don't keep asking for the baby, although you have the legal right to. And she kept asking for the baby. Uh, and of course she's 13. So her mom, is literally like in her mid thirties. So her maternal mm-hmm. stuff's still going. So she's a grandma slash she's feeling like mama stuff going mm-hmm. on. And um, that was really hard. Like, and I, and it didn't drag on for years. Um, there wasn't this like constant uncertainty. And it was still, I mean, not a week goes by that. I don't think about that little girl. Is she oh, okay? Gosh. I mean, yeah. 13 year old mama, like not in a, like just not a good situation. And now yeah. she's, now she's 10 and the mom, mama's 23. Like, Um, So I can't, so all that to say, like, I get a little bit of what you're talking about and I can't imagine that length of time, Mm -hmm. uh, that long, just waiting and wondering, like, is this going to be over? I have a bunch of friends right now that are in the middle of adoption uh, uh, situations and foster situations and just the sitting on pins and needles all the time must feel just super stressful and terrible and you just want it to be over, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, it was traumatic. I mean, it was traumatic to be bonding with and parenting and loving a kid. And then every night as I'm laying him down to sleep, wondering, I, will he be here next year? You know, will he? And then, you know, I ended up having a biological child when he was about one. And I remember thinking, you know, when we'd go to get family photos taken, like this horrible feeling of like, do we keep him in the photos or like, what if he goes back And then all the family photos that we took in these three years have this kid that my daughter doesn't recognize when she's Mm. older, you know, just it, it, it put you in so many horrible, you know, scenarios of, of thinking through the worst, you know, and it was, I mean, I think that is probably where some of my catastrophizing (laughs) skills were. No, naturally. We're magnified because you're just always thinking like you're having to brace yourself for an inevitable loss, which, you know, that doesn't work in life. Like we don't act, our losses are not minimized by like practicing grief before something bad happens, but we do it anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So your, your second son also mm-hmm. adopted. So yes. am, am, am I, am I remember, am I getting the order correct? So it was son, daughter, son, daughter, or was it son, <laughs> son, daughter, daughter? It, it's confusing. And to the point that my editor had me put, we did an illustrated timeline in my book because it's that confusing. I, I remember my, it now. Yeah. Yeah. I got my the book editor right would I be like, I can't remember the order. So the order is very strange. I, Jafta became our foster child when he was six months old Then I had a daughter while he was still our foster child. Then we adopted him when he was three and a half. Then we set out to adopt another child from Haiti. But while he was still living in Haiti, I had another biological child. And then Kembe, who's older than the biological child, joined our family last at three and a half. If that makes sense. So their birth order is out of order with when they came into the family. Yeah, totally get it. So, so, uh, you said his, his name Kembe, is that, is yeah. that what you said? Yeah. So Kembe mm-hmm. is from Haiti. He's from Haiti. Tell, tell me about that. Cause you were, you were, this was actually, this was in 2010, right? Yeah. When oh the, yeah. When the, when the earthquake happened there, oh, you, yeah. you were there. We were there. <laughs> yeah. tell, tell me about that. So you're in a, you're in a, you're in a different place. Uh-huh. Um, it, was that when you were 
picking him up or was that one of the trips? Because this was also a long drawn out process as well, right? Yeah, it wasn't when I was picking him up. So that, I mean, you know, the joke is that we just couldn't do an adoption in less than three years. And so we had adopted Jafter from foster care that took three years. And I was like, I can't go through this again. I, I thought I would adopt all my kids from foster care. But after doing it once, I was like, I can't do this again. Like, I can't put myself into this system And I still fully support and wish that people would. But for me, like one was all I could do at that point with, you know, just the other traumas going on. And so I thought um, that, you know, adopting internationally would be less risky, you know, it would be more straightforward, which of course it never is. And so we set out to adopt Kembe, also met him when he was six months old, but he was still living in an orphanage. And we set out to adopt him when he was six months old and he came home at three and a half. So it was another three-year adoption process. But so the result is that we were visiting him a lot because we wanted him to know us so that when he came home, you know, we were familiar. And so it was just, I had taken a trip down um, just to visit and I had taken my youngest daughter because at the time she was like, At that time, she was 11 months old and we were still nursing. So I had to take her with me. And so it was just she and I and Kembe and we were in a guest house um, and the earthquake happened. So it was very traumatic, very devastating. Um, And I ended up having to leave him because his adoption still wasn't finalized. Crazy. Yeah, it was really, it was really sad. And, you know, it was just one of those scenarios where, you know, I wanted to stay and because the country's in tumult and his, you know, his orphanage was, they were sleeping outside because people were too scared to go back in buildings Mm. because that's how everyone was dying. People were dying from being crushed under poorly built buildings. And so nobody wanted to go inside. Uh, I slept outside. I slept outside in Haiti for a week after the earthquake, before I was evacuated home. Um, I didn't want to go inside either. Um, because there were all these aftershocks happening and the aftershocks were huge earthquakes in and of themselves. Um, So I left him sleeping in a driveway in Haiti, you know, and just the worst conditions. And it was really scary. Um, But my daughter was sick and like, we don't live there. We were a drain on resources, you know? Um, So we came back to the States and then he ended up coming home about a week later um, through a humanitarian parole process that allowed kids in process of being adopted to, to go to their families. Expedite the whole process, which was, and I remember that. I didn't know that you all were a part of that, but I remember, I think I actually have friends that, uh, were able to get their children quicker Mm -hmm. because of that process. They were obviously just trying to speed everything up and clean up all the messes that were being made because of the, the, uh, earthquake. Um, well, I'm glad. So I'm I'm so glad for the the makeup of your family, but I'm also I've got so many questions about. So, the majority of people listening to this podcast are probably seventy five percent are millennials. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're like me. They've got younger kids, um, somewhere somewhere in there. You know, somewhere from like newborn all the way to like preteen and teens at this point. Uh, we have some older folks and some younger people as well that listen, listen to the podcast. So most of them are in 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 my age range. And we're all trying to figure out how the hell do you raise kids uh, that give a damn yeah. in, in this time, right? Yeah. Because I, what I've seen most of my work, this podcast and my company and all the different projects that we have along with the podcast, we've been around for about three years and we're doing a lot more stuff now. And I I always come back to one of my 
like the main, I feel like the the main thing that I'm doing with my work is helping grownups mm-hmm. unlearn a lot of like terrible shit that they learned growing up, yeah. whether it was growing up in like conservative evangelicalism or just, yeah. or just not having, or just the, you know, the generation of our parents, not giving a shit about meaningful conversations with the kids about race, about yeah. LGBTQ stuff. Like it just, that was, they didn't come up. We don't talk about them nope. because mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't believe they existed or they didn't agree with it or whatever. They didn't yeah. think it was a real thing. Yeah. Um, and so now you have this whole generation of people that, are having to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff so that they can learn the right stuff, right? Yes. That's what I see a lot of my work is just pushing people to like be okay with deconstructing, be okay with unlearning, and mm-hmm. then and then be intentional about relearning, about reconstructing, mm-hmm. right? But ideally, in this generation, we can do a much better job raising our kids to avoid all the shit that we're going through now, right? Like that's... Yeah. When I, when I think about my jo- role as a parent, um, you know, there's this wonderful, uh, quote, I think I jotted it down correctly, but you know, you, you said in the book, if I had to sum up motherhood in one philosophical statement, it would be this, they come out of the womb as narcissists and you have 18 <laughs> years to try to change that. If yeah. by the time they move out of the house, they are able to consider others with some levels, empathy, attend to the feelings of others and see the world outside themselves and the people who inhabit it as valid and important. You've done your job. Yeah. And I, and I resonate so deeply with that when people ask like, what's your, how do, because we have, um, I, I am parenting my kids way differently than I grew up being parented. Mm-hmm. Um, I love my parents. They're alive. They're well. They've changed so much in the last 20 years. But growing up was terrible. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally abused. All the mm-hmm. leagues except sexually. That never happened, thank God. But like all the other things like happened to me over and over and over again because it was the right thing to do. And we've got to yeah. like make sure you're in line and make sure you're obeying and make sure you're playing the part of good Christian you know, son, good missionary kid. You're a totally. pastor's kid. I was a missionary kid. And now I think, like I feel so sorry for my parents that they felt like that was their role as a parent versus- yeah versus spending me spending these 18 years with my kids finding good things and saying, what do you think of that? Like, what do you Mm -hmm. think of that? Let's talk about that. Finding bad things and saying, Mm -hmm. what do you think of that? Like, let's talk Mm -hmm. about that. And just kind of, kind of prodding them. I can't, I'm not going to force them. I can't force them, Mm -hmm. but just like kind of, kind of prodding them and like moving them over and saying like, Hey, what about that? Like what's going on there? And yeah. And, and so far I've already seen my kids display like so much more empathy for all people way more than I ever did when I was younger. I was a ju- judgmental oh, little yeah. shit because my yeah. parents taught me to be that way. Yeah. So in light of that sort of context, I just shared, like, <laughs> let's talk about raising anti-racist kids. You have two, yeah. uh, biological white, you have, I'm not, I'm going to take the biological and adopted out. They're all yours. And I, and I understand that and love that. So you have two white daughters and two black sons. Yeah. And all of them, if I'm getting their ages right, because you said they're all like preteens or teens now, they have been able to witness in some way, shape or form the the horrific nature of the, the horrific turn that race has taken in the last few years. Not that anything has changed, but now yeah. it's being filmed. Right. We've got the that's right. Everything that's from right. the Trayvon Martins to the to the, uh, you know, the the Eric Garners to all these things throughout the years. And now in the last few months, we've got Ahmaud Arbery. In mm-hmm. March, uh, we have Brianna Taylor in, or sorry, Brianna Taylor in April, in March, Ahmaud Arbery in April. We have George, George Floyd, Floyd in May. In May. Mm-hmm. 
We had Richard Brooks in June. Mm -hmm. Like we have, I mean, literally it's every few weeks. Yeah. And now, and now mm -hmm. just uh, over the last couple of days, yeah. uh, Jacob Blake shot seven times in the back, mm -hmm. posing no threat to cops in front of his three sons. Yeah. How do you deal with this? How do you talk to your children? How do you, because it's going to be different for most people. You know, yeah. more and more people are adopting and that's wonderful. But like most, most family makeup is like, we have biological children, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is. So they're not having to, they're not having to like toe the line of, I don't just have white kids or I don't just have mm -hmm. black kids. I have both. So what's been your experiencing? And now since a few years ago, you're doing this as a single mom, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of go wherever you want with that. But I'm just super interested in like how you have navigated these very tricky and important waters with your kids? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think every parent needs to be talking to their kids about race. I mean, I know that you, uh, that you agree with that, you know? Um, so I don't think it's just that, you know, oh, you have black kids. So you have to figure out how to have these conversations. I, all of these, like every child probably over the age of 12 or 13 should know the names you just mentioned mm -hmm. and the story behind them. Um, all of us should be having those conversations with all of our kids. But then what gets added, um, you know, parenting black kids is just the conversations around their own personal safety. So, you know, not just that this is happening, but like this is happening and it could happen to you. And so, you know, we have a lot of conversations around how do you respond when you have interactions with law enforcement and it's a lot of safety conversations. Mm. Um, it's a lot of conversations about, you know, the most important thing is that you come home alive. And so what that means is that, you know, you have to behave in ways that other people have the entitlement not to. I mean, you know, if you have watched the, the footage of what happened, um, in the last few days, um, you know, the man was, walking away from a police officer. He wasn't resisting an arrest. He was just walking back to his car. And I, and I think of all of the times that I've been pulled over, you know, as a young white woman and just got mouthy with a cop or, you know, was sarcastic or, you know, and it's like yep. black children, um, black adults just do not have the entitlement to do that. And so we talk a lot about, um, how to get in the right frame of mind in that scenario. Um, and, and it sucks too. Here's what, here's what's tough about it. We're simultaneously, we're telling, we're giving our kids messages about stand up for yourself mm -hmm. and we're giving our kids messages about be direct. Don't let people treat you badly. Um, care about justice and fairness. But then with black kids, parents of black kids have to say, except if you're with a cop, don't stand up for yourself. Like I've literally said this to my kids before, you know what? Um, if they want to arrest you, they just let them take you in and I'll, and, and then call me and I'll come and we'll deal with it. Wow. But like, you would never say that to a white kid, just let yourself nope. be arrested. It's not that big of a deal for you. Like, but you have to say that because it's like, you know what, if you resist arrest, you could end up dead. So don't fight back. Don't, you know, don't stand up for yourself. If it's not fair, let it work itself out later. Like I've told my kids that so many times, like don't get mad in that situation. Think about how we'll, we will deal with that later because you can't try your case with a guy with a gun in his hand. You know, that doesn't work. Like, you know, you let the police do what they're going to do. And then we will, we'll let hopefully the justice system 
kick in. And I tell my boys all the time too, like, if you're in that situation, you just imagine your mom suing everyone later, <laughs> you know, amazing. But like that, you know, you can't get angry. Um, so it's, these are really difficult and fraught conversations. And, you know, it's, it's a hard burden to put on a 12, 13 year old kid to know that his body is a liability as he walks around. I mean, it's, it's devastating, which is why everyone should care about this because nobody should have to feel like that. What's wild, uh, Kristen, is that we are not in, you know, I grew up in Guatemala. So I, I grew up in Guatemala pre nine 11. It was one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Yeah. Like you're, you're in a country like that. I mean, just poverty, corruption, the ending of like a civil war is ending. So there's so much violence. I mean, I've seen people be murdered. I've seen people, they, they tried to kidnap me once. Like we, like I saw some crazy stuff, but then you don't expect for that to happen in the most exceptional, and I'm using air quotes yeah. for those that can't see it, the most exceptional yeah. country in the world <clears throat> that, you know, we're the, we're the leader and, you know, we're the leader in wealth, we're the leader in this, mm -hmm. the, you know, all these things that are not actually true when you look at the numbers, but we, 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 our government, so many people believe this is such an exceptional country where we're, yes. we're beyond race and we're beyond that. It's no longer a problem. And the, there isn't systemic racism and there is yeah. not, there aren't systemic uh, problems within the police, within the policing system, although they've had problems since literally their inception. <laughs> yes. And we shouldn't have, you shouldn't have to, and this is the, this is the hard this is the constant conversation of that I have with my wife about like, do we just leave? Do we just expatriate somewhere? Like, let's go somewhere yeah. that has figured out how to create no, no place is perfect. I understand yeah. that. I've, I've, I've spent time in 30 plus countries. Like they all have stuff, but there are countries that have figured out how to live in a more equitable, just society that does value the most people the most mm -hmm. of the time, you know? And here, like we have this conversation, should we go or do we stay and fight for yeah. like what we want? Like this change, might, it might not change by the time we die, but at least we got it a little bit closer, right? Or do we just leave and say, fuck it, like yeah. I'm out, I can't, yeah. do, I can't do this, right? Both of those are valid things, but it's a constant conversation, even for yes. me, like a, a Latino with not, I don't have dark, super dark skinned kids. Like, mm -hmm. like I don't have to tell my kids like don't, don't die today. Mm -hmm. Like don't die today. Like do whatever they want you to do so that you don't die. Like that is a wild conversation to have. And, and, it and, is. and you tell the story of, you, you know, one time you heard a noise in your backyard, right? Mm -hmm. And you called the cops because you thought it was an intruder. Yeah. And it wasn't until it was too late, too far mm -hmm. into the process that you realized I have two black sons that are, that look like grown men yeah. in my home yeah. and because they didn't just stay in the backyard, right? They wanted right. to come in the house and check things out. So tell me yeah. about that story. And like, at what point did you realize, oh shit, like it's too late. They're here. Like I pray to God that they don't see my sons because this could go really poorly. This could, this could take a turn for the worse really quickly. Well, this is, you know, this is the part of the story that's cringy to admit, but I think it's important for white parents raising black kids because we always have blind spots. Like no matter how much anti-racism sure. work we've done, we are going to have blind spots that didn't hit me until my kid ran down the hallway. Like it, it mm. should have hit me before. Right. But, and, and that is a, a critical difference, like between a white parent and a black parent I'm in talking to my black friends and the way that they have grown up viewing law enforcement. To me, growing up, 
the messages I got around law enforcement is you can always trust them. They're, they're always the helpers. They're always benevolent. They will always show up and help you. Whereas, you know, my black friends have a little more distrust and, and it's legitimate distrust. You know, it's not paranoia, it's legitimate distrust. And I just, I never had that. I never had that distrust of thinking about how are they going to interact with me or with my kids because my kids are black. And so when they showed up and they wanted to come in the house, I was like, yeah, great. I'm, I'm scared. Come in the house and look Mm. around. And then they're looking around and one of my kids gets woken up and he runs down the hallway and he was only like 10 at the time, but he was, you know, five foot five at the time. Yeah. Um, and so he runs down the hallway and I just have this thought of like, oh my gosh, what am I thinking? Like they, they would have, if they'd seen him, which they didn't, they were in a different part of the house. If they'd seen him and they're looking for an intruder, of course they would think it was him. And so that was a big, big lesson to me about my own privilege and really thinking through as a white person, how I interact with cops. Um, And it's, you know, it's been a lesson to me. And I think that that's a lesson that all white people need to learn because we're so quick to call the cops. But if, if, if black people are involved, if people of color, if Mexican people are involved, you know, I, I just think it's really important to think through like, do I, do I want to risk bringing law enforcement into this situation where their presence could actually escalate and worsen things, right? Like, is this worth me calling someone? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, there's a lot of conversations happening over the last few months where it's like, don't call if a black person is involved in any way, Yeah, don't call the cops, like try to do everything you can. Try to do everything. Whether they're the Mm -hmm. victim or the perpetrator, like try to do everything you can, because this isn't, there's a good chance that it's not going to end well. And again, yeah. this is not new. I don't think the police are getting any more racist than they've always been. They've always, it's always been a very race, systemically racist institution. Yeah. But now, you know, we're just capturing it now on film. But like, don't call, like so many times I've seen, there's so many videos out there, more than I can stomach to watch of people calling, you know, there was the one the other day about the kids, uh, they were like playing hide and seek. It was some sort of like a condo complex. There was a bunch of black kids playing hide and seek. And this white woman called on these kids. I mean, they're like five or six, but they're yeah. making noise. They're kids. They're going to make yeah. noise. And her, you know, she called the cops because, because the parents were not with them, like at their side. They were sitting on their yeah. driveway watching the kids, safe neighborhood. They're letting, yeah. their, they're letting their kids do what, what every parent should feel comfortable letting their kids exactly. go out and explore. Yeah. And you shouldn't have to worry about somebody calling the cops because you're not standing right beside your kid when you're watching them from your driveway, like that could have gone so poorly. Yeah. And, and, and not just could, it, it does so many times. So yeah, there's so much that, um, even as a parent of, you know, non-black kids, like I, I have to, th- for, for my black friends, like all, there's just so much more to think about. I have so yeah. many amazing black friends here in Nashville. We've only lived here a couple of years and hopefully our time here is coming to an end. We do not like it, but I have so many <laughs> amazing black friends here. And like, we, we protested downtown for, mm-hmm. for, uh, uh, well, I was there for a few days. They were there for 62 days, day and night. And they finally got the, the governor signed a horrifically like mm. Jim Crow era law of classy felony for, for protesting on state grounds overnight. Oh my gosh. Uh, which ultimately they disbanded because the, the protesters left finally, because it's one thing to get arrested for a misdemeanor, right? Sure. For, for a sidewalk truck or whatever. But now they're making it a classy felony. You could lose your right to vote. 
Um, horrible, gosh. horrible. Like literally, it, it feels like we're back in the 60s here sometimes. Totally. You, so Orange County, to the best of my understanding, mm-hmm. I've been there quite a bit, but I don't yeah. know all parts of Orange County. Mm-hmm. Uh, not known for, you know, huge black population. <laughs> no, um, it's not. Not, not, by, not by and large. And so no. talk about uh, your, your, all your kids, but your boys growing up, um, going to school, like mm-hmm. was, was, were, were they able to be around a lot of other black kids or at least mm-hmm. a very like ex- ex- inclusive accepting environment where teachers, you know, knew how to interact with these conversations and stuff or what's their experience been in, in school so far? Yeah. I, I mean, it's a good question. You know, I think that the perception of Orange County from the television shows and the way it's portrayed in movies is that it's very white. Um, but Orange County ultimately is a cluster of very diverse cities, some right, of which lot, are very yeah. white. Yeah. And then some of which are like not white at all. And we live in a more diverse city of Orange County. And so the kid, the school that my my children attend is predominantly Mexican-American. And so all my kids are minorities at their school. Um, but there are not, there are, you know, we live in an area that is, we have many Mexican-Americans, Persian-Americans, lots of Asian-Americans, but the black population is still really small. So there's still not a lot of black people. So, you know, my kids, they, you know, they will, they will say, like, I remember saying to them, like, do you, you know, do we, do you feel like we should move? How are you feeling? And they're like, well, we're the only black kids, but we're not the only brown kids, you know? Mm, sure. So yeah. I, th- I think that they do relate to other kids of color. But what I've had to do, um, you know, in in an area where they where there is such a small black population is really dive into our local black community and figure out how to get them involved. And so, you know, when they were younger, it looked like they were in an all black Boy Scout troop or we went to a black church. Um, Now they're a part of what's called 100 Black Men of Orange County. And that's an organization. It's a nationwide organization. Amazing. It's mentoring, it's getting kids prepped for college. Um, Their whole motto is what they see is what they'll be. And so Mm. it's just an incredible group of black men who are just putting the time in. Um, And so for me, it's just been about really putting them in all black spaces in the ways that I can, in the ways that I can find, Um, making sure that they have experiences on the regular where they're not in the minority, you know, where they're among other people and that they've had the chance both to know adults and then kids their own age. And then, you know, making sure that my own friend group is diverse has just been really important to me too. And not in a tokenism way, right? you know, but, but just, you know, because I mean, you know, I, there's black moms at my kids school that I'm like, I don't think we really sure. click. And then there's black moms that I'm like, oh, I, I really want to be friends with you, you know, but you know, just prioritizing, making sure that I'm prioritizing, like having a diverse group of friends so that they are growing up seeing all kinds of people in their, in their own home. I'm, I'm glad you brought up, uh, your sons being mentored within this hundred black men group, right? What they see is what they will be. That's an incredible motto. Yeah. You know? It's so, so true. And, and, and what I love about that is I have, I think there's a really there's an interesting conversation happening. Not, it's not new, but I think it's been happening for a long time. Um, is a lot of people think that black fathers are disproportionately more absent than yeah. that. They're in 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 the in the 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 fact that they're absent is attributed to they're 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 lazy. They don't give mm-hmm. a shit. They're like going out and doing. And that's that's fundamentally not true. I mean, as I look at my friend group and I have a very diverse friend group as well, 
the black fathers that I know are some of the most attentive, loving, faithful yeah. fathers out there. What's happening and what people don't want to, you know, and so many Americans reject, I mean, a lot of my Christian white male friends, and I use the term friends really loosely during these days, <laughs> to be honest, I just, I just, yeah. I really, I really have to wade through like how close of a friend are you if we can't, yeah. if we can't unite on this fundamental truth that systemic racism is still alive. And I well. hear you. Right. Yeah. So I, so I, you know, it's kind of, I had to, I have a wonderful friend that I've known for years that the other day he, he never chimes up on any of my social media stuff, except for when it's something about systemic racism. Um, and he chimes in and he has all this data and all these, mm-hmm. you know, these, these black men that don't believe that, that, uh, systemic racism is real. And, and I had to, I, I got to the point where I said, bro, we are not interacting on this topic anymore. Never yeah. again. Like no more. I don't yeah. trust your judgment. We can talk about family. We can talk about beer. We can talk about cigars. Yeah. We can talk about all the other stuff we like no more on systemic mm-hmm. racism because I don't trust you. I don't trust yeah. your judgment. Right. So we're having to make all these calls, but back to my original point, like I have seen so many, f- you know, faithful black fathers. I've seen so many mm-hmm. faithful black men that are amazing. And what, what we have is this whole, we, what we have is a, as a result of systemic racism is all of these fatherless homes, not all of them, so many of them, because there are some shitty black fathers and there's shitty white fathers, right? Like there's of course. fathers all across the, all across of the course. board, but all so across. many of them, but so yeah. many of them, they're in prison for smoking weed on their porch. Totally. Something, that, something that I, yeah. I can do and do many nights on my porch. Yeah. Like, right. Like, I, even as a, even as a little bit darker skinned Latino, like I'm never going to get stopped and asked what I'm smoking on my porch. Mm-hmm. Never, ever, 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 ever. But when you, you know, when you have five times the amount of police presence in mm-hmm. a, in a urban neighborhood and mm-hmm. you're looking for crimes, yeah, you're going to find one. And yeah. obviously, you know, there's so much going on there and weed should not be illegal anyway, but like, that's just so much of it is you have so, you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of black men that should be with their families mm-hmm. that are now in prison for things that did not merit a prison sentence. Right. Uh, you have the the, yeah. the one the other day from New Orleans where the guy's 23 years into a sentence for stealing those uh, hedge clippers. And yeah. obviously he had a, you know, he had a record and he had other, th- I shouldn't say obviously, he had a record, he had other things that he had done, but he was in prison with a life right. sentence for stealing, Yeah. for, for uh, allegedly, he says they're my wife's. Like my wife, these are my wife's hedge clippers in my van, and they said he, they stole them, and now he's in prison for twenty three years and counting now. So much yeah. of that is happening, and so I love long winded way of saying I love this hundred black men organization you talk about. I want to look into it because I, I mean, if there's one in you said it's nationwide. If there's one in yeah. my, yeah, I want to I want to push my friends and um, you know toward that as well. That's really amazing. Oh, it's incredible. But yeah, I mean, as you say, I think you know when you really look at the data on um, black fathers and and even, you know, crime in the black community, because people like to bring that up. You know, if, if people are interested in talking about that, then they really need to do the work to understand it. And if you do the work to understand it, all of it stems back to systemic racism and to oppression, right? All of it. I mean, and, and here's the thing, if you don't think it stems back to systemic racism and oppression, then the other alternative is that you think that there is something inherently yep. Yep. like bad about inhabiting black skin. Yep. So, which is racist. Like Super that is, racist. That is ultimately what racism is, is to think, well, 
you know, a community of people are poor fathers or are more criminal because they have more melanin in their skin. No, that, that can't possibly be the answer. It's the so worst kind have, of racist. Right. So then we have to look at if we don't believe that, if we don't think someone is inherently criminal because they have more melanin, then we have to go, why is there, why is the crime rate higher? And then we look at, well, let's look at the connection between poverty and crime. Yep. Because you've lived in Guatemala, you know, poverty and crime are inexplicably connected. Very. You know, it has nothing to do with skin tone, it has to do with poverty. And then we go, well, why are Black Americans living in more poverty? And then the answer is not that hard to see when we talk, you know, when we go back a hundred years, not even a hundred years, not even a hundred years. I mean, not yeah, even. it's, it's, it's a very frustrating conversation to have. And at this point, at this point, I've told my white friends two things I've told them. Um, and I've done, a, I've read all the books. Like I've done the studying, I've read all the research. I've watched the lectures. Like I get it. I understand it. It's real. There's no denying that. Um, and if there is denying it, it's willful ignorance. But I always tell people like, don't, here's the two things during this season of life. Don't ask black people to educate you. Don't ask no. them. Like, don't yes. go to your friends and say, what's Absolutely. going on here? Totally. Because in the second is just do your homework. As you pointed yep. out, like, you don't, the reason you don't have to ask your black friends to educate you is because the work mm -hmm. has already been done. I mean, there yeah. are thousands of books and lectures so books. and YouTube videos and totally. like, it's out there. You could spend an entire mm -hmm. year, 24 hours a day learning about this and never yep. exhaust all the resources that are out there. Absolutely. So go do the homework. And so yeah. many of them won't. My friend that I just talked about that I finally cut ties with, like I gave him so many things to go read, um, both like books and lectures. And it was even like easy stuff, like go watch When They See Us by Ava mm -hmm. DuVernay on Netflix or 13th, the documentary, like these totally. are easy things. You don't even have to yeah. go read, you know, yet you don't, you don't have to go read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, or you don't right. have to go read, uh, you know, all these big kind of big ideas. Yeah. Like start with a movie. Like I'm asking totally. you to go watch a show that is going to show inexplicably, like very explicitly that this exists. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up what you did at the beginning of your um, your last point, which is if you don't believe that systemic racism is real, then you believe that black people are lazier, more violent yeah. and worse off than white people, which is white right. supremacy. And it's super, Absolutely. super racist, like it's super racist. Yeah. So and they're like, no, that's a that's a false equivalency. That is a no, no, it's literally the only two options there. Because if there's, it's if the only two options. There's something that's not causing these sorts of things to happen. You mm -hmm. know, you add A and B and C comes out, then they have to be just worse people, right? Right. And they'll never admit that. Um, let's talk about color for a second, because yeah. I, I, I wanted to talk about this. I grew up in a sort of environment that denied that racism was uh, a part of the world, and especially a part of the capital C church. You know, the the Christian community, mm -hmm. and so there was always this talk about. Um, color, color blindness. Like I don't, oh, see, yeah. I don't see race. Yes. I don't see your color, which is super wild. I always think of that like comical, uh, clip in the office when Jim pulls that prank <laughs> on Dwight and his like, they're like Asian friend pops in and like, you know, they switch even the picture, the, the family picture out. And totally. I thought it was so wild. I mean, the, the office is wild for a lot of reasons, but, um, both good and bad. There's some weird stuff where I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe they got away with putting that in there. But, but during that little like thing, he says, you know, hats, you know, props to you, Dwight, for not seeing color. And I was like, now when I see that, I'm like, oh, that's so cringy mm -hmm. that, that they put that in there. And that's, you know, the office is, I don't know, it seems like it's probably a more progressive show or whatever, maybe not. But um, let's talk about 
yeah, like colorblindness, like have, how has that conversation happened and have your kids sort of experienced that from friends, from teachers, from mm-hmm. people in the church, or, or have you had to wrestle through that? Were there, was there a time when you even sort of thought that way? I don't know. So let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I, I mean, I talk about that journey in the book, but yeah, I absolutely thought colorblindness was what we were all aiming for. That's how I was raised. I mean, and it's like, it's my parents meant well, you know, my parents, my parents had very racist parents, overtly racist parents. Like my grandfather would use the N word horrible, you know, horrible. Wild, wild. And so my, you know, to their credit, my parents were trying to steer that ship in a different direction, but it's like, they kind of didn't have, didn't have the best navigational system. And so they steered us to don't ever notice race. Like you can't Mm. notice it. Right. And if you bring it up, there's something, you know, and so we would just dance around the topic. And I was, you know, we were, my parents did have very diverse friends actually. And my sisters and I all had very diverse friends. We had diverse boyfriends and that was never mentioned but it was never mentioned, right? Like, yeah, right. We, you know, like we don't see that your boyfriend's black. Like we, you know, we can see nothing. Um, and and I think it was in college. I had to take a, um, you know, as one does, I had to take like a black studies class. And you know, I think that's where I was challenged finally on like maybe being colorblind is not so great because then yeah. I'm not paying attention to the oppression that other people are experiencing mm. or the microaggressions. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've had my own experiences with it. I'll I'll tell you how that plays out as a white mom having black kids is a lot of stories from friends about how, well, Mike, you know, Johnny doesn't even notice that Jaft is black. I mean, Mm. he doesn't even notice, or, you know, he, he, he didn't even know that Jafta was adopted because he didn't even know that he was black. And it's like, your kid knows that he, first of all, your kid knows he's the color Brown, right? Like he can see his colors, um, he may not understand genetics yet. Right, right. But but like it's not it's not good that your kid doesn't see my kids. Like that's not a bragging point that doesn't nope. prove something about the world at all. And we all want to prove something about the world. Like we all want to say like kids are colorblind, but they are not. They're really not. And I'll say another thing that I a lot of people may disagree with. I do not think racism has to be taught. I think that kids sort and color. And when one kid is a minority, you know, you've seen the way that boys, a group of boys can treat one girl in a circle. You know, I I just don't think it has to be taught. I think kids can act in very cruel ways on their own. So dive into that some more. So does that go back to kind of your, like how you believe people are even like born, like kind of their propensity toward, uh, you know, because a lot of people, you know, we grew up in circles that said that everybody was born like super terrible, like super bad. Yeah. You're kind of like, yeah, screwed, yeah, yeah. You're, you're screwed from the beginning and you got original be, sin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the fall. And then there's some people that are like, no, everybody's born good. Right. And then there's all these opinions everywhere in between. So if, yeah. if it's not taught, like, where does it, where does it come from? Well, here's what I think. And yeah. I'm going to take a more psych, you know, psychological please, developmental please. perspective that, because that's my background. I mean, I think people are born nuanced and, you know, <laughs> I don't think we're evil, evil or terrible. Although I do joke that, you know, children are essentially narcissists because yeah. we do come out of the womb literally only caring about 
our comfort and our feeding. I mean, that yeah. is true of infants. And then, you know, hopefully we raise our kids to think about the world sure. around them. Yep. But here's the thing that kids start to do at age five, six, seven, and this is developmentally appropriate. They start to sort right? They start to identify who am I and who is in the world. And I'm a boy and I want to hang out with other boys. And if our kids, if we are not intentionally teaching our kids to be anti-racist, they can start to sort on skin color too. And that they don't have to have parents in the KKK to do that. I've watched very lovely kids be like, let's just have the white kids only. And why do they do that? Is because is it because they've been taught racism? No, it's because they ha- they haven't been taught anti-racism. You know, I mean, it's the same way kids will make fun of someone with glasses, and it's not because they mm. have a mom who hates everyone with glasses. They've probably never been taught that. Kids are just sometimes terrible. They are yeah. all kids, mine included. I think this is a this is an interesting conversation, and I agree with you. Cause I've, I've gone all over the place on, and I have three little kids. So I'm very much like in the day to day, seeing them act sometimes like they're like amazing. Like sometimes my yeah. kids surprise the hell out of me. Yeah. And they're so kind and empathetic. And, and thankfully it, it, that is a majority of the time. Like I, yeah. we have been blessed with really good kids. They yeah. love all people. They, you know, but, 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 and it's a big, but because there are so many times when I'm like, Holy shit, where did that come from? Yeah. Like my kids don't get um it has changed a little bit during the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, we were at 2 hours of screen time a week, like a week. They didn't get anything during the week. Saturday they would get something and maybe Sunday like kind of a show or something educational. So we were like really good and then the pandemic hit and we're just uh, like yeah. trying to hold on for dear life. So now yeah. it's like it's 60 to 90 minutes a day, right? And we're tr- <laughs> still trying to make it good stuff, just but still, still pretty good. Still pretty good. But <laughs> So they, they don't get a ton of like outside. We're very intentional at this point because they mm-hmm. are sponges and so yeah. for, for, formidable. And like yeah. you said, like there's just so many, there's so many things going on. We're trying to put good things in front of them. And then sometimes they'll say or do something or react a certain way. And I'm like, where did that come from? There's no way that you've seen that here or possibly anywhere. I know. So where is this coming oh, yeah. from? And it has to be coming from they're sorting all this shit out and yeah. they're they're both good and bad. And that's yes. kind of wrestling inside of them to figure out, okay, how do I process through this? Again, could be big things like skin color or sexual mm-hmm. orientation or yeah. could be small things like glasses. You yeah. know, like that yeah. kid with glasses, they look stupid. We don't hang out with that kid. Why? Totally. Like, where does that come from? It's so... It's so wild and confusing, but I like the, the approach of... Because I don't like when we go either... When we go on the one hand you know, they're terrible. Like they're terrible yeah. from birth and they're just like, they're lost and horrible and <laughs> and God needs to save them or else they're just going to go destroy the world. Right. The, next, the next Jeffrey Dahmer, like right. sociopathic, uh, you know, killer. Um, or like, oh, they're angels and they're so good. And like, right. and, and, and they have to be taught, like you said, they have to be explicitly yeah. taught to be racist or to be, to be homophobic yeah. or to hate this or to love that. And I just don't see that actually playing out. That's a good, that's, that's a good thought. And it'd be yeah. nice if it was that clean and cut and dry that like, oh, if we want good kids, we just have to teach them good things. And if we want bad kids, well, the, do the opposite. But that's just not how it plays out, which keeps us on our toes. It does. And, 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 it, and it just, it, it makes for a more, I guess, interesting parenting journey. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I, and I think that the key there is, you know, talking to our kids about racial difference at a really young age and then watching them, 
And then saying, you know, hey, I noticed during this play date, you know, that two kids came to the playground and they were Mexican and they are they had accents and you guys didn't include those two. Mm. You know, like really watching yep. our kids. I mean, I yep. think if if parents would take the time to like really watch the social interactions of their kids, it's it's kind of shocking and surprising. I mean, I've watched all my kids leave like leave someone out on gender. I've watched every single one of my kids do that. And then had to call them over and be like, I'm sorry, we're not doing a girls only club on the playground yeah, with one right. other boy. No, yeah. <laughs> don't be an asshole. Yeah, there you go. Yes, I've said that. I've said that a couple dozen, maybe a hundred times. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you've been divorced for a few years. Yes. And so you're raising, um, obviously I'm, I'm sure you're sharing the responsibility, but you're raising for a certain amount of the time for kids. Yeah. What, what have been, and I, I want to bring this up and spend a minute or two here, just because there are so many people listening right now that, that have experienced divorce for any number of reasons. Mm -hmm. And they are now raising kids and they want to be super intentional at raising kids who give a damn, raising anti-racist kids, raising anti-homophobic kids, like all those things. They're trying to figure out how to do it. What have been some of the challenges of raising, you know, and probably some of them are obvious, but like, what are some of the challenges of raising four kids as a single mom and also doing that without that sort of uh, dad figure or not even mm -hmm. dad figure and, or like just that other, that helper in the house that doesn't, doesn't uh, necessarily mean you have to have that, but it is helpful. I mean, I, I, I applaud you for you know <laughs> taking this on and doing it because I need like in our circumstance with my wife, like I can't imagine doing it without like running my career. I have, you know, a couple companies and a nonprofit and all this work that we're doing, making a TV show. And I couldn't raise three kids. I couldn't even think about raising three kids doing that. So what is, how have you been able to wrestle through that? What are some of the victories, the highs and the lows there? You know, I think, I think one, one thing that I've had to do in order to pull it off is that I, I have had to pull my side of, myself out of that very traditional mom role. And I've really had to task my kids with learning to do things for themselves. Like that's Love the it. only way it works. Like it. if you're old enough to put your clothes in your own closet, then you can do your own laundry start to finish. Right. And, and I've had, and, and a part of that too has been me letting go of like, so then things aren't going to be nicely folded. Like, but I'm going to have to let go of that or my new routine now is, and my kids are older granted, but I, you know, I, I think we can underestimate kids and how much they can help. And we're so used to our own routines, but like on Sundays, I have my kids go through cookbooks and they plan what they're going to make that week. And then they text me and I order the groceries and then they make, they make full dinners, like full on dinners, wow. even my 11 year old. Love it. So, so, you know, I mean, they say necessity is the mother of all invention, but it's yeah. like, it's kind of true. It's like, I literally couldn't do it all. And the result is that my kids have become like very mature in a lot of ways, which is funny because in many cultures, I mean, this is a very kind of entitled American thing to be like, I've taught my kids to cook and do their own, you know, because yep. in many countries, kids are fetching water at five right. and working the family farm at seven. Right. Um, but, you know, we just, we, myself included in our American culture, do we just really underestimate what kids are capable of? and heap a lot of that responsibility usually on the mother. And I think for me, it's like, it's really pulled me out of that role. And it, and it's given my kids a lot of gifts because I think they'll walk out into the world 
as adults who already know how to do a lot of things that adults should know how to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, as someone who has traveled quite a bit around the world, it is weird that our Mm -hmm. kids don't take on some of that stuff at an earlier age. It is weird, right? I mean, yeah. I've, I've spent six weeks in the bush of Zambia, Africa, and these mm-hmm. kids are, I mean, literally at, from the time they can speak, they're doing right. like, full, not just chores, like to, oh, to yeah. kind of like make them earn a dollar or to like right. keep them busy. Like they're a part of the livelihood. Of they're the running home. the household. They're running, yeah. they're running the household. And so mm-hmm. I, I love that you have used this uh, as an opportunity to, your kids are going to benefit heaps from oh, yeah. learning how to not just cook their own meals, but like mm-hmm. choose the growth, like pick the recipes, send yeah. you the list. Like all of that is teaching them uh, a super ton. I love that. I think that'll be super helpful. I have a, f- a few friends right now that are kind of literally in their first couple of months uh, of post-divorce mm-hmm. and trying to figure out the new norm with two, three kids and the back and forth and all that. And I think that will be, I mean, it's helpful for me. And I have, I have the help here. <laughs> and I think that's super great to like, you know, begin thinking about how my kids, they're already super helpful. They have chores, all that stuff. But um, they, to go back to what you said, like they are capable of so much more than we. They are. They really they are. Think they are. Their kids are amazing. Yeah, they are. But I think, you know, a, a lot of it is lowering the bar too, you know, and knowing like, if I'm going to let a kid, if I'm going to work and let a kid fully pull off dinner, totally. it's not going to be the dinner that I maybe no. would have made. <laughs> No, it's not yeah. some not some four star amazing no. <laughs> meal. It's gonna it might taste a little off, and they might have missed an ingredient. Totally, we're, we're gonna eat it, and they're learning. Yeah, let's uh, begin to wrap up here. I wanna I wanna kind of land the plane talking a little bit about faith real quickly because yeah. you know you started talking about you know you grew up as a pastor's daughter, very conservative fundamentalist uh, sort of you know, and you even said your, your grandfather, I think, you know, mm-hmm. used the N word. Like, so there's some weird stuff going on there, but like, how have you, but then you also were explicit in pointing out, like, I would still call myself a Christian. And that obviously mean that can mean a lot of things like nowadays, right. Mm-hmm. We're, again, we're in this weird time. Uh, we didn't even talk that much about the pandemic or any of that. There's so much going on right now, but what we do see is um, I had to make a very, explicit, I had to make make a very, um, not super public, but I just had to make it very explicit a few years ago, uh, 2015, that I was leaving um, evangelicalism. I was yeah. not leaving my faith. Yeah. Um, I can't leave my faith. Like it literally, I, I, I've tried to leave it. I've tried to get rid of it <laughs> yes. because, because sometimes <laughs> my spiritual, you know, brothers, sisters, aunts, uh-huh. uncles, grandpas, and grandmas, they're shitty people. And by sometimes, yeah. I mean so much of the time, so much pain and violence and abuse has been inflicted by these people that are supposed to be defined by love God and love your neighbor. Right. Yeah. And there's so much crazy stuff going on, but I tried to get rid of it. I couldn't. So I'm in it. You know, I I had to reconcile, like I'm in it and I, and I want to be in it, but it's just, yeah, all those things that we have to, you know, work through. So I kind of left the evangelical name for good, but trying to figure out this new norm and where I, where I fit and kind of stripping off. I was very intentional about my deconstruction and then immediately begin reconstruction process. Like I didn't want to stay deconstructed because I actually Mm -hmm. wanted to stay in a lot of my friends deconstructed and then they're like gone. And I don't, I don't blame them, but there was this deconstruction without an intentional, like, okay, now 
the house is down to the studs. Mm-hmm. Where do we begin rebuilding? Like, do we start mm-hmm. with, do we start with the bathroom? We start with this, like, where do we start totally. rebuilding? I was intentional about that. And so here we are four years later and there's a lot going on, but like, how's that journey been for you? Yeah, I think like, I think a lot like you, I mean, I don't, I, I think that I, I always wanted to reform. I didn't want to dismantle. Right. And so it started with reforming, reforming my own faith. And I think for me, um, that looked like finding other Christians that I felt like I had, you know, something in common with that were on a similar trajectory. Um, and then for me, it really looked like going back to the Bible and really looking at like, who was this Jesus guy Mm. and is what I have been taught by the American church, really what he was living and teaching, which I think the answer is he, it's not, it's just, there's a lot of discrepancy. And I personally, I mean, I might be a little radical for some, but my personal opinion is that Jesus was absolutely a socialist and was preaching a socialist gospel of taking care of one another and sharing amongst each other. And, um, you know, that's how I read it. I, I, I read the Bible as this guy was like real into social justice and real into the marginalized and the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so for me, if that's his priority, that's my priority. Um, so I feel like that's where I've kind of reconstructed my faith is really going back to the personhood of Jesus. Um, but when I, when I really started doing that is when I started feeling more and more uncomfortable with the church. Yeah. Big C church. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because the church doesn't look at all like what Jesus called us to do. It, you it know, and what's I mean, wild is like, it didn't when this, when I was going through this journey, which was like 2010, but like 10 years later, it looks even further away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. 80. I mean, I thought it was kind of a fluke, some weird fluke that, you know, bad dream that 80 something percent of evangelicals were white evangelicals. That's, that needs to be said that were supporting this, you know, uh, this rapist, unfaithful liar, cheater, like failed businessman, like, uh, doesn't stand for anything that Christians should stand for. Totally lacking integrity. So I was like, okay, you know, you know, maybe whatever, maybe he's going to change. I don't know. I, I mean, I, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to vote for him, but I was like, well, maybe they're onto something that I don't see. I hope mm-hmm. to God that they're right. Um, Cause here we go with four years and we've seen four years later, yeah. nothing good has come from this. No, it was and as yet, bad as we thought it could be. It was, it was as bad or worse than we thought it would be. And they're still supporting him. And I so, know. yeah, it's really hard. Um, you know, I had a conversation actually the, the, the latest podcast on my, I don't usually, uh, interview this many Christians in a row, but, <laughs> but I had Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales on last week, uh, because not for any other reason than, I don't know if you saw his viral video from a few weeks ago, the one called race in America went yeah. viral. I mean, 10 million yeah. views. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. And he and I had a good little chat about that. Cause, cause I was like, the reason I haven't left, the reason I haven't wanted the whole thing to just blow up is a, I do believe that there are faithful Jesus followers in here yeah. that can still do good yeah, and will and are. And also no matter what group we're always going to, we're always going to be part of a group, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, liberal or conservative Democrat or Republican Christian, not Christian, like no matter what group we're a part of, you can find shitty people doing shitty things in every Everywhere. single group. 
There is yes, not a group can. in the world, nope. political, religious, yep. societal, cultural, that yep. did not do and it, or maybe is not doing terrible things. So yes, we can't avoid sure. bad people. We right. can't avoid bad people doing bad things. You have to believe in something fervently enough. You have to believe that it should be changed and reformed yeah. um, enough to like stay in and say, okay, I'm okay getting um, some shit on me. Like I'm okay yeah. getting some, gar- I think it was not that I'm a huge St. Augustine fan, but I think he said, what did he say? He said, the church is a whore and she's my mother. Like <laughs> he literally was like, my mom's a whore, but mm-hmm. she's my mom. She's mom. She's mom. Yep. And so stick yep. by mom, you know, like totally bad things happening. Got to stay in it. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's a weird time and I don't quite know how I feel about it all. And I'm trying to stay in. I'm trying to stay faithful. I'm trying to do what I think uh, Jesus, I'm trying to figure out what he, what, what Jesus is doing in the world and trying to align with that. It's trying to get on yeah. board with that yeah. and not get mixed up in the fact that another Jesus follower named, and again, that's an air quotes, Jerry Falwell Jr. Like it's all coming out, you know, oh, yeah. uh, sits in the corner of a room while this dude's banging his wife and he's okay with it and mm-hmm. all these scandals. And now he gets a $10 million payout from this, you know, yeah. I mean, just scandal ridden to the nth degree. Thousands of Liberty students have been expelled for wearing short skirts and for totally. making out with their boyfriends. Totally. And now the president, the guy leading the whole thing, yeah. horrific scandals and he totally. gets paid 10 million. So you look at that and you're like, ah, how do I, how do I stay I in this? Like, how do I even remotely associate with this and say, no, 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 there's some, there's some good ones. Like we're, yeah. there's some good ones in there, you know? So it's super hard, super hard. Um, as we wrap up, I want people to, I'll link to your, your memoir, your book in there. Anything else you want people to go find out about you? What do you want them to go follow? What are the links? <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. It's your few um, minutes to tell people to go follow all your stuff. Well, I am at Kristen Howerton on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, and then my website is kristenhowerton.com. And the book is, it's great. You're a fantastic writer. You really are like super engaging. And I read a lot. So I know a good writer when I read one and super, super fun. Um, Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you for kind of giving us an insight on you raising this, uh, you know, really beautiful mixed family. Thank you for helping us uh, get more insights into how to raise anti-racist children, how to raise kids that truly do give a damn. And, um, Hope we can do this again sometime. Maybe next book or next whatever. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure that. out. We'll figure out another reason to talk at some point. I enjoyed this. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's the show today, friends. A huge thanks to Kristen Howerton for joining me on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. You can find her book, blog, social media, all of that and more at kristenhowerton.com. Visit Let's Give a Damn. .fm for show notes and links and to find other great episodes of this podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Seriously, I'm honored that you listen to these conversations. I'm honored that you show up week after week. I created this show. Chad's Navely produced it. Let's Give a Damn as part of the Matter Media family. You can reach me anytime and for any reason at hello and letsgiveadam.com. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. Sending so much love and peace and light to each one of you. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.